Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Alves, and kicking things off for us tonight, the great Marvin Gaye with How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. 
playing that not just because it's a great song, but also because uh, this episode, to start the new year off, is entirely centered around the work of Lamont Dozier. Uh, I had the good fortune of getting him on the phone earlier this week to discuss his new memoir, which is actually called How Sweet It Is. And uh, we're going to be playing that interview in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, one of the other songs that uh, s- centers pretty f- prominently in his memoir, and in fact is actually the anecdote that starts the whole memoir off, it's Stop in the Name of Love, The Supremes, here on 101.5 UMFM. Well, Lamont Dozier has chronicled his life in How Sweet It Is, a songwriter's reflections on music, Motown and the Mystery of the Muse, which is out through BMG Books, and he joins us on the line. Hi there, Lamont. It's great to have you on board here. Same here. I'm always curious about kind of like the inflection point at which someone decides to do something, and specifically with a memoir. When did you decide, I'm going to write a memoir? Oh, God. Uh, They've been trying to get me to do this for the last 
30 years. <laughs> and uh, I decided to uh, to do it. I gave in, and, and uh, we're having the talk uh, with Scott, and uh, we had uh, decided to do it. In fact, uh, we got along so well on a, a podcast of his. And um, so we decided to, to get together and talk it out and see uh, see uh, how we could come up with some work together. Now you say gave in on on doing this. <laughs> did you like? Did you feel like pressured that like you didn't necessarily want to do this at some point? Or well, uh, you know, I just felt like I, I still had a few things else, a few things to say yet, and uh, uh, but. After talking with Scott, you know, we we, we decided that uh, 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 it was time to do it now. Why wait any longer? You know, after 30 years, uh, and had different people approach me with uh, with the idea of doing this, uh, I just gave it to him. He he matched uh, and said the right things. I guess you might say. Now, unlike a lot of memoirs, this uh, has the device of kind of this bold faced. Uh, emphasis points of uh, tips for songwriters that are woven in throughout your, your story. And I'm, I'm curious how that idea developed. Well, you know, uh, we were talking, Scott, uh, um, uh, working at uh, uh, US, uh, USC uh, uh, University and teaching class there uh, for five, five or six years. Um, I wanted to make sure that I uh, I, I put in some uh, avenues of formulas and things like that on how to write songs, because a lot of the people always ask me, uh, up-and-coming songwriters, would ask me, how do I go about writing a song, and what do I do, uh, what frame of mind am I in, you know, and uh, what do I have to do to get started, and so... That's what that idea came about. I always wanted to do that. If I, I got got a chance to do uh, the book I wanted to do, that I would make sure that I had these lessons and uh, uh, give people uh, cues on how to go about doing it. So speaking of how to go about doing it then, did you have the specific tips or ideas and then try to figure out how to find the places to tell them in your own story or did those well scott done that he he, okay. he arranged and put them in there i had all the ideas the formulas and whatnot i've had them for years uh teaching at a university uh, uh i decided that uh i'd have these these i i gave him to uh scott the the ideas and the and the uh, formulas and uh and how to go about a lot of and he just applied them to the different stories I had about my uh, life and 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 all the work that I was doing, and he did a good job of doing it. I, I really, I really appreciate it. Well, and uh, but but it was good. That was the way to do it. He the way he organized it. You know. So then the decision to open the book the way it does. Is that you and Scott, or you or Scott? Like, how do you? I mean, because it's a pretty bracing little entry with the uh, genesis <laughs> of "Stop in the Name of Love." I don't think I've yeah. read a sentence that opens a book like that before. Yeah, well, that was his idea because I did have that story, and I, uh, after uh, singing uh, and putting on programs around the, around the world, I told the story about how uh, "Stop in the Name of Love" came about in. Uh, and that's how it came about, and 
he said it would be a good way just to start the book off that way for, for some reason. But it caught. I thought it was funny. I thought, and also thought it was a. Uh, uh, get the person's eye, whoever was reading a book, you know, to get the attention, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so uh, he, he thought so, too. So uh, that's how it started. But uh, everybody loved that story, that Stop at the Name of Love story, when when I had appearances, when I'd done appearances and what have you, uh-huh. uh, throughout the years. And so we decided to stick that in, you know, to open up the book with that. Interestingly enough, it, as as kind of like a, a structural thing fits the song itself, right? That like that exclamatory stop. Yeah. And then the like it, the tension lessens as you kind of get into the, right, the first right, verse. Right, and this right. this book kind of has that stop and then yeah. pulls back. That's right. You caught it. <laughs> yeah, you you you're right on it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and like I said, Scott was very good at that. He's a very good. A uh, guy to put things together in the right places and dot all the i's and cross all the t's. I mean, he did everything that I thought was good. And my wife, uh, she was like uh, ecstatic about how how he put it all together, you know. And that's one of the main reasons why I decided to uh, to do the book you know, uh, because of him and his ideas. That kind of collaborative uh, bouncing things off each other or sorting things out. Right. I mean, that's that's the Holland Dozier Holland thing, right? Like that's it goes back to the fact that you guys chose portions of the song or how the process went, and and mm-hmm. were able to kind of work it the best way with the combined strengths and and sort of that aggregate approach. Right. Right. We uh we had a uh uh, uh for ten years we had a a uh, collaboration that was. Uh, uh, spot on. I mean, we sort of like read each other's minds and and uh, said things before the other one could complete complete a sentence. And uh, and that came with a lot of the songs. Like uh, Brian and I would sit at the piano, and I would jump down at the piano and, and finish off what he had started on a melody or or some chords. That's how we basically worked. You know, it was it was like a great great collaboration for for ten years. You know, but. Uh, you're right. That's how we uh, basically put our things together, now, using each other's uh, talents. So, you, yourself and Brian, particularly, you you write in, in or at least it, it's, it's it says in the book that you know you credit both being raised in the church and in a shared love of classical music as kind of one of the linchpins for kind of the commonality, or at least kind of seeing things the same way. Um, I think it comes yeah. about when you're talking about. Uh, working on Reach Out, I'll Be There with Levi Stubbs and getting him to sing kind of beyond his own comfortable range because it was more like like the soul-shouting right. church approach. That's right. The urgency was very important because the the songs had to be, uh, uh, had to have some urgency on it to, to, uh, to sell the audience. You're selling the song and you want, you want the, uh, the listener to uh, be uh, taken by it. So uh, all the... Uh, that we took the artist like uh, Levi Stubbs and 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 look, took him to uh, uh, as far uh, or as far as his talents could go, like uh, his key, like sing uh, sing out of his key, you know, or stress it to the point where he can uh, sell the book, where the urgency is heard and felt by the uh, listener, 
And we did the same thing with Marvin Gaye, you know, how, mm-hmm. with how sweet it is. You know, we we pushed him to the point of where he had to go into a falsetto sometimes to uh, to get the feeling that we were, we were after. Was that something that came about, like, organically, or did you have conversations kind of philosophically about what you were trying to, to accomplish? Like, Yes. We, 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 we sat out and talked to, uh, among ourselves, the three of us, mm-hmm. of how we should approach the song and how how about uh, what the lyrics were saying so we could get the so we could sell it to the listener again and uh, uh we were very successful at uh, uh you know making uh, the approach uh, uh listenable catch uh, we used to say uh you're catching a, a listener in the first four to eight bars by giving them something to uh uh wake up their ears or their their emotions, you know, to get them interested in hearing the whole song by giving them something really uh, dynamic in the first four or to four to eight bars. So speaking of the interesting things, things that catch people's attention, you, you talk about kind of like the period when the Beatles revolver, you know, kind of changes things and starts bringing in psychedelic, right. you know, notions that that freed you up in some way to kind of, do some experimentation of your own, and and you discuss, you know, the the Walter Winchell news bulletin noise <laughs> that you know yeah. Yeah, that's fostered. Little, you keep me you hanging know, on. Can the, you talk uh, about that? I, I was always listening uh, for uh, new uh, new approaches to to uh, uh, to get the the attention of the listener, you know, and you had to give them something uh, that they're used to hearing or something they're familiar with. And the Walter Winchell thing, I was just sitting there, Walter, listening to his newscast for years, and 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 it just stuck me that little, uh, uh, whatever they call it that he used, that like a what he telegraph type of thing, and and the way they played it, then I decided I'll go in the studio and. Get the musicians to zero in on this feeling, you know that uh, that were uh, that was I uh, heard it with Walter Winter, uh, and uh, it worked, you know, and it just uh, opened up the uh, the song. It was it was right, it was spot on, you know, and it opened up uh, and get, brought the attention to the song, you know, in mm-hmm. those four bars. So, were you kind of constantly thinking about ways that you could do something like that, or were you like like? Because I know you talk about having to pay for for the recordings if it didn't kind of pan out. Were yeah. you kind of cautious about the cost, or were you just like, I want to f- try and experiment and see what kind of sticks? Yeah, well, you always have to experiment things. That, that's the whole thing about uh, writing a song. It has to be something different. And uh, that would uh, the, the, the listener would be excited by or wake up the, their senses to want to hear the rest of the song. But I always uh, we uh, we always uh, would sit down and, and come up with little things uh, banging on the piano for different sounds. We didn't have uh, synthesizers in those in those days, so we had to make up our own uh, little uh, ear candy type of things, you know, like. Um, like those different sounds, and uh, and however we came about uh, doing uh, uh, collecting them, that's the, what we would go for. We would always try to hear something different, different to uh, to uh, brought the, uh, to get the attention of the, uh, the person listening. You know what I mean? Right. 
Now, I kind of want to talk a bit of the business side of things, just because you do chronicle a lot of kind of the a the the initial like kind of Motown when you're not allowed to see a lawyer and you sign these contracts and then eventually that comes becomes a conflict and then w- when yourself and the Holland brothers form a company and then you, later on uh, with some publishing stuff. One of the ones that really kind of caught my attention, though, was, you know, uh, when, after you guys have had a little bit of run of success with the Supremes, Barry Gordy sends out a memo saying, like, we're only going to release top 10 songs and the Supremes are our number one act. So they're only going to release number ones. And and I'm curious about like a culture that creates this or, or expects this and, and how, you know, yourself as, as, a, as a creator can can function under a circumstance like that. You know, it was very hard to do that because uh, uh, it, it, when you step up to the plate, so to speak, in the studio, uh, you have to come up with something that's got to be a home run, you know, because in the meetings that you have, the quality control meetings we had every week, we would play the the songs we, we came up with for the week. We, we would try to, uh, we had to hit home runs going out. That's all we were thinking about, and uh, when we stepped up to the plate, so to speak, in the studio, that this song has got to make it. Even before going in the studio, when we were in our offices and and listening to uh, ideas and or uh, trying different things, we made sure that that uh, we had things that would, uh, like I say, um, be strong enough to compete at the at the. Uh, uh, quality control meetings, or else because uh, there's a lot of people bringing their songs in, and to order to uh, compete and come out with the release, you had to be extra special. You had to come up with some some special that everybody could identify with or feel like, wow, that's that's interesting. Man. What was that? You know, uh, and to get that attention, you have to always be thinking of doing something different, always have. But, and it would be tr- sometimes very trying on the nerves to, uh, to to try to hit a home run every time you know, when you're in the studio. And uh, a lot a lot of times that uh, it, uh, it, it worked and a lot of times it didn't because, uh, 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 you know, you could get, make yourself sick behind it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at times I did have anxiety and Brian and I and I both would have moments of anxiety because of uh, the way we had to keep pressing for that number one or top ten hit. The, you mentioned, you know, tr- trying to come up with something new or, or novel. Like, did it ever worry that you, like, you might kind of push too far or, like, that the novelty might be, like, the only thing that makes it different rather than, you know, its quality necessarily? Like, was that something yeah. you were worried about? Yeah. Uh, Sometimes uh, you can go too far. You can be sometimes over the person's head, the uh, listener's head, uh, the audience. In other words, uh, I remember a song called uh, Forever Came Today. We decided to to just stretch out, go as far as we could with chords and arrangements. And actually, it was uh, the arrangement was totally, I think, over overly done. You know what I mean? becomes uh, something that uh, that was hard to feel by the audience, you know, because you got all of these uh, uh, structures and song uh, uh, things that you're trying to do to show what you can do uh, musically when that's not the purpose of it. You want a song that a person can feel, first of all, the 
have to feel it. Cause if, uh, and we have to feel it. If we don't make them feel it, if we don't feel it, they're not going to feel it. So uh, uh, in that song, Forever Came Day, I always thought it was like overproduced, you know, and that's why I didn't do uh, what it did, uh, like some of the other songs did. Uh, you can sometimes overproduce, uh, and that's what uh, happens sometimes. Obviously, with the quality control meetings, it's 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 up to the group and it's out of your hands specifically. But were there times where, you know, you just kind of felt the group think was way off? Sometimes, say that again. Or were there times when you thought like the group think, like maybe the consensus was way off from what you your perspective on a song might have been? Uh, sometimes, but uh, we had um, well, we had uh, uh, we could do our own thing. We were uh, sort of speak uh, 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 very, very good. He's a fair-haired boy, so he let us have our own say how we wanted to do things. So we we totally uh, wouldn't do things according to Hoa uh, in the meetings. We would uh, always try for something different. And so, because uh, uh, we were all trying to be different, you know. And so that's, that happens a lot, too, uh, when... Uh, you overproduce sometimes reaching, you know, you reach too far, you cross the line between uh, uh, what's a hit and what's not a hit. If everybody knew what was a hit, uh, it would have been a whole lot more hit songwriters out there, you know. That's very true. Uh, you talk about when when you're it's you and the Holland Brothers you formed formed a, a company and a couple labels that in 1971 you work on an album uh, called Contact and you say that that was kind of the the first real kind of like focused endeavor on on an album and a, and a concept because you'd been you know so focused on creating singles up up to that point. I, I'm curious about if you can talk or recall kind of what your mindset was and and how you approached an album differently than you know thinking about a single and and what kind of creative structure that entails. Yeah, the, all of the songs in an album, uh, like in this album, my contact. Uh, you know, it has to have uh, 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 a feeling of uh, a connection. Each song, uh, I feel, should have uh, a connection. Uh, so when you go down the eight or nine songs, or ten, uh, twelve songs, sometimes uh, they're, they're totally, uh, they don't fit. You know, they get an album with a whole lot of botch uh, feelings and everything, but they have to have uh, a connection. The stories, the feeling, it has to have uh, have that connection, or it just doesn't work. That's a, what uh, the, the album project is always uh, one that you have to take time, more time in uh, developing uh, a feeling and a message. You know, so so all the songs have a, 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 so, a certain kind of feel. That, uh, that uh, the 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 listener can't get identified with. Is it more like building like a like a puzzle at that point? Yeah, like where, how yeah. pieces fit you together. Might say that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely like a puzzle. Like you're trying to get to tell a story that uh, the, a continuation of a story that has a beginning, middle, and end. You know what I mean? Another album that you you talk about that I I certainly caught my attention and I, and I wanted to to ask you about was the album working on you an album that you did under your own name 
yeah that you say you know the the a and i r guy uh larkin arnold at that point had moved from atlanta to columbia and the, the album kind of got lost in the shuffle uh, can you tell me about like the album working on you like you know where your head was at when you were writing that and because you, you say you know it was one that you if felt very strongly about but that it just got got kind of looked over in some sense yeah uh that, that was a disappointment for me too uh because uh, I thought that album had all the potential of becoming a big, big album. But because of one thing or another, the, the company uh, didn't get behind it like I thought they should have. But, and those things, you really can't uh, you really can't say why things happen. And uh, uh, I thought working with you had a, a great idea and a connection, you know, to a lot of people that had a, a lot of... Unrequited love problems in life, you know what I mean, and other feelings that uh, uh, I try to give people feelings of uh, everyday life, you know. And I thought this album, Working on You, had all the potential of uh, uh, becoming a, a, a learning tree, sort of experience, life learning experiences that people needed. That's that's where my head has always been. I, I was uh, that was uh, I was on my own at that time. I hadn't been, but uh, I had left uh, left the Holland Brothers with with them for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So that was just one of the albums I had done uh, alone. And, but that, but the company sometimes you can't get them to, to feel what you feel, you know, and uh, uh, they didn't get behind it like I thought they should. Working alone at that time, that shift from you know having having someone to bounce ideas off and stuff, did that change how you kind of had to listen to your own songs? Like, did you find you were more scrutinous of uh, what you were right. working on? Absolutely. Uh, I I came uh, well. Well, I, when I had to check it out, I had to wear all these different hats. You know, where before I did, uh, I had a collaboration. Uh, participation, but now when I had to wear all the hats, you know, it got to be a very hard job, and things you have to uh, to second guess a lot. You find yourself second guessing uh, a lot of decisions on uh, what should go in the album, what the what the songs should say, and uh, you know, all of the little things, formulas, and, and little tricks and things. So, but. Uh, I try to tend more to what's real, what's feel as far as the story is concerned, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what was more important to me. Um, and sometimes uh, you, you outthink yourself. Sometimes, you know, what I mean, uh, you do too much or you don't do enough. You know, is that like like getting in your own way? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm trying to say, you, you get in your own way and you have to. Get around yourself. You get around your uh, the, the songwriting thing is just be simple as possible, but unique as possible. You know what I'm saying? Right. And and you do talk. Uh, I mean, it's right there in the the subheadline of the of the book, the master muse. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you know you you got to like leave room for that muse. Yeah, you have to. And um, I, I um, being a spiritual person. Uh, Master Muse to me is God, and he's always, he gets the last word. And uh, 
I can feel it when I sit down at the piano and when I'm in the studio and we try get the last take. You know that's that's the one. You know that's that that particular uh, song that has the last take or that uh, track is the last take or the definitive track to do make uh, the song work. Uh, I call it uh, you know a feeling you get from the master muse. You know that helps you along. You know right. Now, one of the things that I, I found fascinating uh, that you talk about kind of in the tail end of the book is is a publisher deal that you had where you wanted to, to jump ship, but you had like about 45 tracks still owing and, and oh, a very yeah. specific kind of like, you know, they had to be released and, and some some specific things that you then were like, how do I go about getting this done in as short a time possible. And you say that, you know, basically over the course of a couple of months, you managed to, to bang out these, these tracks. But then you say that, you know, coming out on the heels of that, uh, music published companies started changing the way that uh, they had their minimum delivery requirements. And, and I was curious, like, was it something you were aware of? Like, did you see them no, say, Hey, I, we want I, to address this? Or I, did you find out afterward? Yeah, I found out afterwards. I, I was trying to see, if I could do this, because my lawyer told me, well, you'll never get out of this contract, man, because it's, 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 it's you got to deliver so many songs and and what have you. And, if you, and I said, well, when somebody told me something like that, when they when they say that type of thing to me, I t- I accept the challenge, and I say, okay, well, we'll see about that. And uh, I just went out uh, in the world and, and looking for talent, and I had about three or four albums I did in that short span of time. And um, and I got it done, and uh, the money it was a little money that was still left over to get me out, and uh, the lawyer that told me I never could would get it done. Got called uh, uh, some people in uh, London and got the rest of the money that I needed. And sure enough, I got out of the contract, and uh, so other other uh, publishing companies and whatnot specified on how uh, you could not do and could do what you couldn't do to get out of a contract if you so they they locked up the all loopholes you might say and uh, they couldn't uh, it wouldn't let you out and uh, and that's what the new contracts so you might say I started something that uh, gave uh, new uh, new ideas to a lot of the publishing companies and they put these little things in there so you couldn't uh, connections or loopholes that you couldn't break. You, know? you you became the first and only one to, yeah. to accomplish that. So, yeah, I gave them uh, ideas to put these loopholes in and to stop you from doing that. Because uh, I, I wasn't sure how I, could, how, how I could do it or get away with it, but I did, you know, thanks to my muse, too, <laughs> of course. So you, you obviously had, you know, this difficulty with a publishing company, you had the issues with the Holland brothers kind of coming out of the, the company that the three of you formed and you had issues with Motown and there were, you know, protracted legal st- struggles with all, all of these things. Did that affect your songwriting at all? Like, w- d- could you m- separate the business of things from the, the creation of the art? No, you know, it, it's funny thing about that. Uh, um, I always felt like uh, if, if I was challenged, it was a, another challenge to me. Uh, and it was I used to say that uh, um, you have to if you're going to be thin-skinned 
in this business, you you can't survive. You know, I tell my students that you know, uh, if you're going to be scary and thin-skinned and, and and doubting yourself or what you can do, you won't get anything done. So, so the more the merrier. So I took on all these challenges, and I was able to uh, perfect. Uh, uh, still have come up with a, a viable product. You know that people like. You know, and the song still. Uh, came across as hits and, and uh, uh, what have you, you know what I mean. I did what I had to do in sure, spite of it. Sure enough. Uh, you had several tracks that were re-recorded and became hits again and again. Yeah. The the experience of hearing someone's take on your song that you weren't necessarily expecting, right? Because, like, you know, something that you wrote for Motown, you had the group in mind. But then yeah. later down the line, you know, someone else has taken it on. Has it ever surprised you someone's read on your song? No, you know I was I, I thought I thought it was like uh, uh, I thought it was quite quite exciting to to see what somebody else rendition of uh, an old song of mine how they felt about it like the oh man and so many so so many people that uh, um, you keep me hanging on was one of those songs that had been done by three or four different different artists. And they all went to uh, top ten or number one, and 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 they and they, the, the the arrangements and the, how they approached the, those songs were very exciting to me. How they came up with these ideas, how they completely changed it and made the song their own, their own. You know what I mean? I thought it was very clever. Hmm. Want want to ask you about uh, Phil Collins? Because uh, it seems like you guys, you know, the first time you meet him, he bows down to you. And then uh, you do end up striking up a friendship and, and you work uh, several times together. Right. Um, like, it, Was it just kind of organic? Like when you first met him, there was like a sense like this is a person I, I could could be with on a, on a creative level? Or how did that 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 collaboration develop? Well, it, it was a natural thing. I thought it was a natural thing. Sometimes you meet people and you just feel, you just feel them, you know. Uh, the, the the energy and and when you start talking shop about it. at the time that I met Phil Phil had already did one of my songs uh, uh, you can't hear your love I think it was that he redid and um, but when I saw him went to a show and saw his performance and we got to talking afterwards and uh, he just, he had these ideas about how he he'd love to continue. Uh, that Motown type of sound that he wanted to do in, in one of his films, uh, uh, Buster. Buster. And he asked me uh, would I uh, be amenable to uh, working with him on that. And I said, yeah, of course, you know. So he didn't want to write any of the songs at first, you know, until I started coming up with these ideas uh Acapulco and uh, Two Hearts, and uh, then he wanted to be involved. He got involved with the uh, with them because um, he, thought, he thought it was just fantastic, and uh, the, the the movie album, the soundtrack album, was, was pretty good. And uh, and we were able to do some things for um, uh, Eric Clapton as well, you know, that uh, he was producing. So. Uh, it was just one of those things. We just clicked, you know, and everything that uh, we worked on together just worked. It just it just happened, you know. 
and uh, uh, he was just—he's just one of those people. And he's a good friend, and uh, uh, we just got along well. How can I say it? You know, mm-hmm. it's just wonderful, wonderful working with him. Uh, coll- like collaborating on on say two hearts dynamic wise was it something similar to like the way things were shared with the Holland brothers or was it like an entirely different kind of approach to things? Well, it was totally different from the uh, the way we worked. He and I worked together from the Hollands, you know. But um, he wanted. To, I had three or four different ideas that I was working with for the movie uh, and the song Two Hearts. So I was said I met him in Acapulco, and uh, when I got brought these ideas out, uh, he heard of me. He said, "Wow, man! I, I thought you were just going to give me some ditties, <laughs> you know? but these things are incredible, you know." So uh, uh, it's just um, it was a different way of working with him, you know, because I try I always try and reach for something different, something uh, that he would feel. Uh, when I would collaborate with different people, I would always try to get the source of what what their feelings were about. Uh, I try to, you know, get in touch with their feelings, so I know what to write. You know, in this case, that's what happened you know, with two hearts. Is it a sense of trying to like write in their voice or or find a song that their voice could legitimately exactly sell? Exactly, yeah, something that uh, you felt. Uh, after talking with him and sitting down and talking, what have you, uh, you try to uh, do something, try to give that that voice to the that person, you know, that that he would automatically automatically feel. And, and in this case, uh, Two Hearts was uh, one of those songs that he called immediately. He said, "Wow, man, it, it touched him right away." You know, giving people giving people what they needed to hear mm-hmm. is uh, a game. It was a trick, too. You know, made something that you had to learn to do. I want to ask you about a couple more songs here. I know uh, I'm really appreciative of your time. Uh, Popeye, which was the B-side to a song that <laughs> you released. Uh, it wasn't under the name Lamont Dozier. You had to choose a different last name there. But uh, uh, Lamont wonder- Anthony. Right? Yeah. Uh, wondering if you can what you recall of that song and, and if you can kind of talk about your experience with that track. Yeah, when um, I did this song, uh, I was the uh, custodian or the janitor over at this record company, Anna Records, uh, Barry Gordy's sister's uh, label, Anna Records. And um, while she was waiting for, she signed me up to, to sing with the group over there, the voice masters. And at the time, uh, I was doing my daily chores, you might say, packing records and uh, mopping floors or what have you. Uh, I was waiting to get in the studio to do my own thing. And uh, I came up with this song, Popeye. I had a feeling on the piano, a little riff that I came up with. So I sat down, sat down at the piano and I was showing uh, Harry Fuqua, the Moonglows, because uh, uh, he had just joined up with the company with Marvin Gaye. Uh, came uh, that was a singer with the Mongols at the time, and Marvin played drums on it, and uh, uh, Harvey played the uh, piano. Robert White was on the guitar. James Jameson was on bass, and so that's how it came about. 
uh, just from a, a riff that I had, and and this this eye, this story about Popeye, and uh, just caught on very. It was an instant hit uh, locally, and until the the King brothers came in and stopped us, you know, wouldn't give us permission to do it, or we couldn't do it for some reason uh, because uh, they they said I was messing with the, their copyright or whatever. Uh, that they didn't want to give us the uh, the rights to do it though anyway, but it was like a great song. It shot up, up shot up the charts locally, and uh, I was so so heartbroken, but we had to stop it and change it to something else. Some Benny the Skinny Man that just didn't work, you know. What I mean? But um, uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that song, but. Uh, it still is one of my favorite songs of all time. That's what, I was very young. I was I was nineteen then, eighteen or nineteen years old at the time. Right now, Marvin obviously drummed on that one. The uh, one of the other tracks I wanted to ask you about was the recording of "How Sweet It Is." Yeah, uh, and I'm wondering if you can relate the story of of cajoling Marvin to record it because. <laughs> yeah, well, we gave him after we sat out and cut which cut the track. And uh, we had the song written and everything, so we made a demo, uh, dem- a demonstration, you know, uh, uh, of the song, and uh, uh, and gave him a copy of it to learn. You know, that's what we do most of the time. With uh, give him a, a reel, a reel, a little uh, from the web core, web core that we had. Give him a little reel, a copy of reel, a reel copy, and uh, he supposedly uh, had. Uh, took it and uh, was going to learn it, and which he didn't do it. Uh, a week or two weeks passed, and we were trying to get this the stuff completed on him, and he hadn't even heard the record. He didn't. He didn't even uh, take the time to hear it, you know. So it was just pissed us off, some terrible. So when we got the day that we were supposed to be in the court, uh, recording studio, we took him uh, in, and he didn't know. He had never heard the song, so we, you know, man. So one thing led to another. So we got him to, to listen to it in the, in the control room at the time, and he heard it and heard. It. He said, "Man, you're cutting this damn thing too high." And he went through this all these uh, uh, excuses why he, could, he said it's too high. The keys in the wrong. But it was it was just well our, our way of doing things, cutting it. So we had that uh, emergency or that urgency rather to. Uh, put in the song that the song needed. And uh, so he listened to it about 15 minutes uh, and uh, went in the studio. He said, okay, let's try it. 15 minutes we did the first take and that was the one. He did all the falsetto. He went into his different ways of the vocal gymnastics. And it, did, it was just perfect. And we just looked at each other and said, wow, this cat was just one of one of the great artists. Uh, I had the privilege of working with, you know. But uh, he could be ass. <laughs> he could give you, he could give you a fit, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. but uh, but he was, he was a genius at certain certain uh, the way he projected songs. You know. Well, I love the coda to that story that he he had his golf clubs on him. He just picked them up and was like, oh, "We're yeah, good, yeah, we're good." Right. I, I left that out, right, right. Yeah, that's but nearly he, punctuated. He was playing playing golf and he had to get away from that so. He, <laughs> oh, man. But that's what you had to deal with. But to get him to do something, you know, 
Absolutely. Uh, the, the last track I wanted to ask you about, it's uh, Come and Get These Memories, which you, uh, you know, it was the first top 10 R&B hit for Holland Dozier Holland. Uh, but you say that you originally wrote that with Loretta Lynn in mind. Yeah, yeah. When I came, when I signed up with Vergoy at, uh, at Motown, I had already, I had already written that song. Uh, I'd done it. Uh, I'd written for, uh, written for Loretta Lynn. And, uh, well, I figured, well, how in the hell am I going to get to it? I didn't know anybody that, that knew Loretta Lynn or could hook me up with getting her this song, you know. And, uh, so, um, after, after I'd failed, the attempts failed in trying to get the song to her, I just did it a different way in a kind of a jazzy blues way, um, uh, for the, for Martha and the Vandellas. And, uh, and, but, uh, I really heard, uh, I wrote it with her in mind. I really had a, because of the story, and it sounded like a country song, you know, and it, it, uh, the way I originally done it. And I just heard her singing it, and uh, but I couldn't get it to so I did it a different way. I did a different approach to it. It surprised me that you say, you know, like you listened to country uh, songs because you, you appreciated the, the song craft that went into country songs. Yeah. Exactly. I love country writing because it's so real, and the stories are so, so believable, you know. And, uh, and I got a lot of ideas, and I was always uh, 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 listening to a lot of country songs for uh, what they were saying and how they approach a, a different uh, uh, feeling about life, life lessons, you know, and... Um, I just enjoy. I still enjoy. I still listen to a lot of country songs. Said life lessons there. Has there been any track that you can recall that like you you took a real life lesson from 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 another songwriter? Oh God, I don't know. Uh, I I've kind of like at some time or another felt something uh, about a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. Some of the, some of the songs the Beatles done back uh, back in the day in the sixties. You know. Um, uh, like a fool on a hill, that uh, Paul McCartney basically wrote, and uh, Michelle, uh, my daughter, my first daughter, her name was Michelle, but that was before he wrote this. Huh? But uh, a lot of little ideas and how they approach, it was, I thought it was just very slick and very smart. You know how they it went about getting to a person's emotions. You know how they did it. You know. Man. And that was very clever, you know. Uh, and everybody to get a person to feel, uh, you know, feel something that uh, in a song is not an easy feat. You know what I mean? You have to be saying something to get them to go to the store to buy your product, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but they were good at it, and um, we were good at it, and. title the book is how sweet it is it's obviously one of your songs did you wrestle with like what to call this memoir no that was that was scott's that idea was scott. he felt uh that was one of the, the main songs uh in my repertoire that uh, 
should be should be still uh, should be called that because of uh, it was a big hit and uh, it was done by James Taylor. A lot of people recorded it too as well. So mm-hmm. it was one of the reasons why we thought that would be a good idea. Well, the book is How Sweet It Is, A Songwriter's Reflections on Music, Motown, and the Mystery of the Muse. It's available now through BMG Books. Uh, Lamont, thank you not just for your time, but for, for a lifetime of music. I say this as someone whose youngest child is named Isley, because uh, I, you know, this this is music that speaks to me, and, and I really appreciate what you... Oh, thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate that. Thanks, and, and, uh, and, and best of luck to you. Okay, same to you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Lamont Dozier performing under the name Lamont Anthony with Popeye, the B-side, to his release on Anna Records. And uh, that's one of the ones that we were talking about in that interview. My thanks to Lamont Dozier for his time. That ended up actually, that interview went longer than we had booked, so I am very grateful to him for taking some extra time with me. And I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this uh, program. I'm just going to... Keep playing some more Lamont Dozier-related stuff. 
Uh, one of the things we talked about was the Buster soundtrack and his collaboration with Phil Collins. So we're going to play Two Hearts. And then we've got a collaboration he did with Hugh Masekela uh, that uh, scored a big hit in South Africa. It's called Going Back to My Roots. Uh, we got more here on 101.5 UMFM and then stick around for After 8 Radio coming up at 8. It's 
told you, I told you, what goes up must come down. You got your face, you got your face all over the magazines. And I see you, I see you all across the movie screen. And they tell me, they tell me you was held in Hollywood as one of the most glamorous, most
Love. 